welcome to Central Valley Physicians Podcast. My name is Nicole Butler with the Fresno Madeira Medical Society, and today I have with us Dr. William Ebling, and we're going to talk about food allergies. Welcome. Thank you, Nicole. Glad to be here. Glad to have you too. So I'm going to go ahead and get started right away because I think this is such a, a, a large topic for pretty much any population, but, um, you know, food allergies, I feel like are becoming a lot more common these days than they back when, when I was a kid and I have young kids myself. So, um, so can you explain what exactly is a food allergy? A food allergy, if we're talking about type one, which is the anaphylactic type, this is when a person eats a specific food, a protein within that food triggers a allergic reaction, a systemic allergic reaction, which may be noted as stuffy nose, mouth feeling like it's full of cotton, chest tightness and wheezing, nausea and vomiting, breaking out in hives, abdominal pain, cramping in women's uterus, hives all over, shock, and sudden death. So that's that's the more severe piece of it where just you could have a food intolerance as well, which wouldn't have those severe symptoms, correct? There are food intolerances, yes, that don't have those type of symptoms. For instance, uh, lactose uh, intolerance. You're missing the lactase enzyme. So then you will bloat up after eating milk and ice cream uh, and have uh, a diarrhea condition because the lactose turns into coke in your colon and causes all kinds of problems, so, uh, things like that. Okay, so w when we talk about, what are some of the most, I mean, you say, um, you know, like a, an aversion to dairy products. What are some of the most common food allergies okay, that you the see? The big ones are milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanut, and uh, crustaceans like shrimp. Corn is now becoming a little bit more of a problem, and uh, the tree nuts are also becoming more and more of a problem. Okay, so why why do you feel, why are there, we adding <clears throat> things to that? I mean, why is corn now becoming one of those, those tolerance um, where, I mean, that's the first time I've ever heard corn before. Let me add it, bring it to you this point. The most common food allergy in Northern Europe is potato because it's the main starch there. Wheat was the big one for the United States. Rice is almost unseen here, but is a major one in China and Japan. It all depends on what the person's eating. And the more we have put corn into the diet, the more the possibility exists that the body will process it in the wrong way. Interesting. Okay, so, so the one that you hear most about is a peanut allergy. And that I feel too has grown with a lot more of the population, or maybe I'm just hearing about it more often, you know, children, you know, you hear peanut free zones, peanut free yes. schools. Uh, peanut is a major one along with shrimp in that the other ones I mentioned, 85% of the kids lose them by age five and 15% keep them. But when it's peanut, 85% keep them, and only 15% lose peanut allergy or shrimp allergy. So that's one of the major research questions that's being looked at is, why do so many people keep that one and not lose it 
and in reverse. And to date, there's no good answer for it yet. Okay, interesting. So, so let's jump to wheat, though. So now wheat is another one, too, where you're starting to hear a lot more people going gluten-free. Okay, let me change the definition at that point. You notice I said type 1 food allergy for the peanut allergy. Uh-huh. There is also type 4, which is uh, more of a poison ivy of the colon. And the two biggie, big ones there are uh, wheat in the form of gluten. And also uh, there's a dietary protein intolerance to milk. This usually results in abdominal pain, uh, bloody diarrhea. Uh, it is a very different process. You don't anaphylax and give yourself an EpiPen shot with type 4. Uh, that one is simply total avoidance. And again, the type 4 has been sort of on the march uh, with more and more exposure to it. Okay. So type 4 basically is not going to kill you. <laughs> type 4 It's going to make you uncomfortable. Could make you very uncomfortable. And if you were to overdo it and had such terrible bleeding, uh, you could get into danger of dying. But it is not the one that will kill you in minutes like the type 1. Okay. So not one that you would need the type of EpiPen for. EpiPen would be useless on type 4. the anaphylactic. Four. Okay. Okay. So, well, you know, you talk about these tolerances and some of them you just kind of you get they're annoying you get an itchy throat or you may have some swelling you know that is sort of a myth okay that oh this is just a mild allergy mm -hmm. food allergy is russian roulette with a gun with a thousand chambers and one bullet you never know when you could have had no, 10 very mild reactions, and the 11th one will kill you. I have been told by one of my patients of a gentleman uh, in the Fresno area who wasn't a patient of mine, uh, would go out with his friends and say, don't worry, I'm going to break out in hives tonight while we're eating because I'm allergic to shrimp, but I like it too much to uh, stop using it. And, oh, by the way, I got some Benadryl in my pocket to help me. The problem is Benadryl does nothing for the serious effects of a systemic allergic reaction. It may cover up the hives, but if you're going to go into shock and die, it's going to do nothing for it. Mm -hmm. And he did that multiple, multiple times. And one night he was out with his friends, suddenly collapsed at the table, and was dead before the EMTs got there, and he never carried an EpiPen, they told me. Now, there is a totally preventable death if that person had been taught appropriately about the dangers of food allergy and the importance of avoiding things even if you love them. Mm -hmm. So he got the bullet that time. He got the bullet that time. Wow. And that's what I'm trying to get people to understand. You may have a bunch of them that are mild, but you can all of a sudden get the bad one. And then you're in trouble. So anytime that you have an, a, a reaction to, you know, like strawberries is one that I always felt, well, is it the actual strawberry or is it the pesticides that they use on the strawberry? But I do. I, I break out in hives on my neck sometimes. And so that's telling me I shouldn't be eating strawberries. Exactly. Okay. Uh, strawberry is one of those 
um, ones that we hear a lot of, and you're one of the rare ones because strawberry isn't a huge one that people come in with. There mm -hmm. are some that have them, but it's not a huge one. Okay. So you, you mentioned in the, in the types of um, type 1 versus type 4 that a type 4 people will outgrow as they, as they age. No. The other way around. Type 4 usually stays with you. Okay. Uh, the type 1 uh, for the milk, egg, wheat, and soy has the high percentage of outgrowing it and uh, a small percentage that keep it. Gotcha. So on the opposite of that, can you grow into a food allergy? It appears that some people will develop them later in life. And there's no um, exact reason why we all of a sudden develop it. When a protein enters our stomach or our body, the immune system needs to say friend or foe uh, and have something that, if it's bad, will stop it. And usually it makes an immunoglobulin G to protect us so that we get our immunizations to uh, protect us against uh, diphtheria, tetanus, those type of things, mm -hmm. the flu vaccine. Uh, that's making an IgG. The IgE system appears to be related to parasites, protecting us from parasites. Now, there are four major immunoglobulins, G, A, M, and E. G and M are used to protect the bloodstream from infections. A protects the mucus barrier from us being infected. And E protects us from parasites. Since parasites can enter tissue, that means the immunoglobulin has to go through tissue. The other three just float, two in blood and one in mucus mm -hmm. and blood. But the third one, fourth one, E, has to go through tissue, and they can't just move through tissue. So it attaches to a special white cell called a mast cell. The mast cell has receptors on it to hold between 50,000 and 200,000 IgE proteins on its surface. As that thing crawls through our tissues, if it finds the protein it's made against, it attaches to it. When it attaches, the mast cell goes off, releasing histamine, tryptase, and a whole bunch of other active chemicals that and then allow other white cells to come rushing in to fight and destroy it. So it is the parasite treatment method, but for some reason, uh, and it appears that many times sensitivity comes through the skin. Uh, one of my board questions was, who's more dangerous? And the answer to the question was, grandma kissing the baby with a little bit of peanut butter on her lips because the peanut butter in very small amount gets onto the skin, gets absorbed, it's in the tissue, and it can trigger the IgE reaction. That's, a, that's fascinating. That's crazy how simple something could trigger and how fast it works in your system. Yeah. Now, we have radically changed our guidelines on food allergy in the last five years. We used to say avoid all of the uh, foods that can be allergenic, like peanut and... Uh, 
egg and things of that nature and wait until they're three. That turned out to be the worst information we could ever have come up with. There was a study done between Great Britain and Israel, and they took Jewish children on the same diet who followed the British guidelines in Britain and compared them to the children in Israel. Israel has a peanut product that is a puff that the four to six to eight month old kids just love to munch on and eat, and they get it very early in life. And the study was to prove to the Israelis that their letting peanut in early was dangerous to the children. When the study was completed, there was uh, a lot of red faces because it proved that eating the peanut very early in life was protective and the rate of peanut allergy in Israel was much lower than it was in Great Britain. And we followed that same habit of avoiding the bad foods for three years. With that bit of information, we are now telling people when they start introducing foods, they introduce the allergenic foods right on early in the four to six month range and do it in large quantity. You would mix it up with something so that they will eat it, but bring it in in a fairly large amount over a week's period of time so that the body says, oh, this is friend, tolerize to it, and not, oh, this is an enemy, and fight it. So we knew at age three that the incidence of allergy was the same in the two groups, but the thought was, well, at least at three, by avoiding it, you would um, prevent uh, the kid from having a reaction without being able to tell you, because communication is hard right. before three. Right. And... Uh, but what we found out was it left them wide open to micro exposures like the lips of grandma mm -hmm. uh, with the peanut on it that could sensitize the kid. We also found out in a study done in Germany that a too clean of an environment leads to allergy. At birth, when a baby is born, uh, it's supposed to come through the mother's birth canal pick up all the bacteria that it's supposed to ca carry that helps them uh, colonize their uh, lungs, colon, everywhere else in their body. And we've been so clean and wiping things off. And a study was done bef between children raised on the farm and in the city in uh, Germany. Now, the German farm has the house built into the barn. So the mom only has to walk through a door and be in where the cows are. So she may strap the baby to her back, go out with her pail, milk the cow, and while she's milking, the cow goes plop, plop, uh, whiz, whiz, splashes all over, the dog comes up and licks the baby, and the baby gets more exposure to bacteria. Whereas in the city, it's spick and span in the houses, as clean as you can make them. And what they found out was, there was a higher incidence of allergy in the spick and span houses of the city versus the farms. And what it was was the exposure to all these bacteria translates the baby's immune system from IgE before birth to IgG after birth. And if that is delayed, they both may continue and therefore the higher incidence of allergy. So it's called the hygiene hypothesis. 
and that is uh, again something we are making sure now that uh, like for instance babies uh, born at c-section may be swabbed uh, in the mouth with secretions uh, from the mother so that the baby gets the ability to uh, get colonized appropriate with these bacteria. I guess there's a reason to for the normal birth versus the cesarean. Yes, uh, it, there's there's a lot of reasons for it, but at the same point, uh, there are reasons for the cesarean if the baby's dying because of a problem right, right. with coming out. So I want to go back to the introduction of of these these high um, allergen foods. You say they should be introduced from four to six months. In- no, somewhere whenever you start. Okay. It's in the four to six month range okay. when most people start. I used to like the six month range. Others like the four month range. So the, the recommendations is once you start feeding solids. Start introducing them. Start introducing them. Okay, so let's use milk because I think that's the one that a lot of people get worried about because you're either at a four to six months, some babies are still being breastfed, some are on formula. Is it true that some formula have some milk products in it already? Or? Almost all of your primary formulas are milk-based. Okay. So there is only milk in them. Okay. Then there was the soy-based formula, mm-hmm. which was the next one out. Then they did one where they were partially hydrolyzing the proteins. Now, there are two, at least two out there now that have no protein in them whatsoever. The proteins have been broken down into amino acids, and amino acids are not allergenic. It's the protein that can be identified, uh, but the amino acids are what the protein is made of. So the baby is getting everything they need but no protein exposure. And I I just had a baby come in with uh, sort of like a milk intolerance, milk allergy, looked like a milk allergy, but there still was a questionable casein hydrosylate in there, which is a milk protein. Okay. And it was for uh, a milk allergic child. Uh, I would prefer to be sure that it was 100% 100% amino acid and not a hydrolysate that may have some milk protein in it. Okay. But the milk is there. Uh, they thought that soy was the big answer, and the soy proved to be as allergenic as the milk. Right, right. I've heard that too. So the breastfeeding still is the best, but occasionally the kid somehow seems to become intolerant to the milk, and then the mother has to leave it out of her diet, which isn't very good either. Right, right. So how how does one... What, how, what would your, be your recommendation on introducing um, a peanut to a, a six-month-old? I mean, you don't want to, you're not scraping peanut butter into their mouth, obviously. But, I mean, what's the best way to introduce that? Be, and what should you look for? Well, what I'm saying there would be you would take the peanut butter and mix it with uh, breast milk or uh, some thinning agent to make it, Soft More and probable. runny. Okay. And then spoon feed it to the child that way. Okay. Uh, or you could take something like carrots and mix the peanut in with, with the carrots. With okay. the carrots. Uh, I am, at, at, when I was a pediatrician, I did not like cereal. 
uh, cereal for a baby makes absolutely no sense because it's virtually 100% sugar carbohydrate, yeah. which only fattens them up. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the parent would feed that to them and the kid would get constipated. So then they would be given apple juice, which was carbohydrate. Right. And you would take a breast milk or a formula that was 60% fat, about 30% protein, and about 10% uh, carbohydrate, and turn it into a 100% carbohydrate. Well, the baby knows that if he's not getting all the nutrients he's need, he's going to eat more. And the end result is you have these very fat babies at the 9-12 months period instead of these lean, mobile babies that should be. Mm-hmm. So my tendency was to introduce the vegetables first because they were low in calories. And the mother's breast milk or formula mm-hmm was given to full amount that the child wanted with the foods being added in so they learned swallowing and things of that nature. And I found uh, I had a captive audience uh, after my graduation from uh, residency uh, in Naples, Italy with the Navy. And uh, I had mother saying, this is the most muscular, active baby I've had because they're going all around because they weren't sitting there with rolls of fat that would keep them from going all over the place. Mm-hmm. So uh, our nutrients, uh, and I think we're, we're going away from the cereal more and more in our education because all that does is fat and things mm-hmm. up. If we live in the area of farming, if a farmer wants to send an animal to uh, the meat market for a few weeks or months before, he feeds them grain to fatten them up and marbleize it. In 1950, the American Heart Association had our food um, guidelines totally changed uh, because they were afraid of uh, cholesterol. And we went to the uh, low-fat, high-carb diet, and it was uh, Atkins who came back in the 90s who showed that that was a very bad diet it made people fat in itself. And when you look at the baby boomers, we're one of the fattest generations uh, in b- compared to the people before us because we all went over to this huge, highly carbohydrate diet, right. which uh, I don't think was very good for the heart. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I think it's coming back the other, the <clears> other direction where it's you know obviously a lot less carbohydrates and a lot more... Um, We're much more into protein now, which I think is a much smarter way to go. Okay, so going back to to food allergies, how long does it take for a reaction to set in if you do if you do try, you know, type one? We know it's immediate. You know, you're gonna you're gonna everything's starting to shut down, close up. Okay, the food allergy on type one can occur anywhere from seconds to up to two hours. Uh, after two hours, it's very unlikely. Okay. And then what with the type four, it, the same thing, you could start seeing some of the... No, the type four, usually it's the next day that by the time the food has to get into the uh, intestines and then the immune system goes on the attack, uh, damaging the lining uh, and therefore absorption and other things get interfered with that we start seeing the problems. So... 
the immediate is usually your type one allergy. Okay. And the latter one is your type four. So are there, is there somebody that's more at risk for an allergic reaction to food or is it just darn unluck, unlucky? There appears to be environmental factors, genetic factors, uh, infectious factors. It isn't a simple, straightforward thing, but we will frequently find food allergies running in families. So we know there does tend to be a genetic predisposition to the possibility. But we also know there are all kinds of environmental and other type of factors. So there's no good predicting stuff right now as to say, oh, this one is, this one's not. So what about, you know, that you bring up a good point, the valley. So we live here in the valley. We have, we already know that there's um, air issues. There's, we have a higher population of asthmatics in this area. Do you find that people in the valley are allergic to you have higher um, allergies or um, let, allergic let reactions? Let me straighten one of the, your, your introductory comments, okay? Our dirty air is like a hot shower on a sunburn. It lets us know we have the problem. I'll have patients that go to the coast and they'll say, oh, I'm so much better there, my asthma's gone. Pulmonary function shows that it's there too. So... We have more people in the valley that know they have asthma because the dirty air makes them aware of it. But as far as have we got a higher incidence, that's yet to be seen because there are so many people walking around with asthma that uh, don't know they have it. But our dirty air lets them know they have it. And I've had people go to the coast, feel like they were doing good, despite my recommendations, stop their medications, and then when they come back to see me, have really dropped, not symptomatic of it, because it, you have to be in real trouble to start having symptoms. So uh, there is a, a, a point. Now, our ozone in the summer is a toxic substance to the lungs, so it can aggravate an asthmatic condition more uh, than just a hot shower on a sunburn. So I'm not saying it's, it's good, but what I'm saying is this whole idea of, oh, there are more asthmatics here than there are on the coast may not actually be true if we were to check everybody out uh, uh, along that line. The mild and moderate asthmatic many times has no symptoms, and that's why we're still stuck uh, in the world of uh, asthma with one-third of the deaths each year being with people who, when they're records are looked at after they pass are listed as mild, persistent, intermittent, or never had the diagnosis made. And missing is the controller medication that would prevent it from having a problem. So yes, there's problems here. Now, as far as food allergy is concerned, uh, again, I'm not sure we have all that much more food allergy here than in other locations. Um, Yes, we have a lot of allergy worldwide, and the incidence of food allergy is going up. And we've got a new medical problem called eosinophilic esophagitis, which we hadn't seen probably prior to 98 or 
2000. And it is those eosinophils invading the esophagus. And when I have a patient that has three, four, five food allergies that are real, I start looking for eosinophilic esophagitis because usually normal people with food allergies may have one or two, mm-hmm. maybe three at the furthest extent. But when I get four or five and six, I look for this new disorder, eosinophilic esophagitis. And when I talked about the mast cell going off, releasing a bunch of stuff to call in other white cells, the white cell it calls in is the eosinophil. The eosinophil is the kamikaze pilot of the body. It is what attacks the parasite. And when it goes off, it kills itself along with damaging the thing it's attacking. So we're talking about a a very potent white cell. It is a white cell seen very frequently in people with asthma. So uh, there's this new disorder, the uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, which uh, I believe Valley Children's has opened up an EOE clinic. I have a lot of patients with it, and I work with Dr. Judy Davis on a lot of those. So there is uh, that when I find a lot of food allergy, that's another part of the picture. So, and how is that treated? At this point, avoiding the food that causes the problem, Mm -hmm. which could be quite a few foods taken out of the diet. Uh, They are using uh, budesonide as a thickened liquid or uh, flovent being squirted in the mouth without inhaling so that it settles in the mouth and then goes down the esophagus that way. Uh, There are new treatments for asthma that attacks the interleukin-5, which makes the eosinophil multiply. And a lot of us are hoping that the studies uh, undergoing now uh, with that material treating the uh, eosinophilic esophagitis may prove to be uh, highly effective, and that will become the primary treatment. Uh, So there's a lot ongoing with it. It's a brand new thing uh, that we hadn't seen before. And uh, why we went in that, why this came about uh, people are still scratching their heads to some extent. Medicine's amazing. Oh yes, we <laughs> have a very <laughs> we have a very complex, uh, unique body that's all set to do different things, and it can go awry sometimes, uh, causing problems. And uh, so, but these are all part of what we're doing. Adults are found with EOE when they have to go to the emergency room because of a stricture in their esophagus. Uh, many times. That stricture comes from the EOE having been untreated for a number of years. Uh, the children, the little kids with it, just don't want to eat and they're losing weight and things of that nature. So food allergy has gone from very simple to far more complex. I'll give you another complexity. We now know, for instance, there are probably at least five different proteins in eggs that you can be allergic to. A couple of them are heat unstable. Some of them are heat stable. Therefore, if you're allergic to the heat unstable one, cake and muffins and things like that, you can eat without risk. But you still can't eat the soft boiled egg 
Whereas if you're allergic to the heat stable one, all of those are a problem. So again, it is making our job a lot more difficult in trying to know what to avoid and what not to avoid. Uh, there are some tests, but I don't think any of the insurances cover them, trying to identify which protein the person is allergic to and find out if it's heat stable or heat unstable, uh, things of that nature. But there's a lot of progress being made. And we're fortunate here in uh, the Valley that uh, the Lucille Pickett Hospital at Stanford, uh, its allergy department is involved in a lot of research on food allergy. I was trained at Duke, which was a major food allergy center. Uh, one of my teachers went on to um, New York City, uh, uh, Dr. Hugh Sampson, and uh, he does major research in food allergy. Uh, so there are a number of centers around the country that are looking at food allergy, how to treat it. Uh, there are a lot of attempts uh, at desensitizing the patient to the peanut. But on the other side of the coin, it appears that the really anaphylactic kids aren't being put in the study at this point. And the ones that they're helping some were the more mild right. reactions. And there is some attempt to try to figure out if there is a way to determine if we can separate out the bad reactions from the mild reactions. But at this point, we have no clear guidelines. So that's why I used the Russian roulette uh, idea. And I try to get more places not to use the Benadryl as the first thing because it can cover up uh, warnings that you need the second Some shot. Of the symptoms, yeah. So it, you mentioned that for the egg with the, the different proteins, there's not real, there is a test, but it's very expensive. Can you be tested for other food allergies? In what way? Um, well, I mean, you think of, um, like when you go in for scratch tests, can food allergies be tested that way? Yes. Uh, now, there are two tests, but to have a diagnosis of a food allergy, you have to have two things. One is a positive test, and two, a history of a reaction to the food every time you eat it. Okay? Okay. So, I will usually do the, the prick skin testing to the food, and I usually like to have the patient bring in the foods to which they're allergic because the oxygen in our atmosphere may change the protein. So, pricking with the fresh food many times works. The only one I can't do that to is tomato because tomato contains a substance within it that can make the reaction look positive. That's why the little kid who eats a tomato and has all the little hives around his mouth mm -hmm. may not be allergic to the tomato because licking their lips causes little cracks in the skin, which is like a prick, and then put the tomato substance, which is histamine-like, on the surface, and it makes uh, for the hives. So we have to use the extract on the tomato because it's just the protein without the other stuff in it. Uh, and we have to be able to separate those. But on the foods, <clears throat> we do have good ones for the milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanut type things. Um, 
<clears throat> but when it comes to the fruits and the veggies, many times the fresh fruit or veggie is a much better test. And so we'll prick with that. The RAS testing, the, when they send the blood from the kid off to, to this whole list of things with the RAS test, that is going to come back with false negatives and false positives. If the protein is sensitive to oxygen, then it may come back negative falsely. If the protein uh, was by the body converted and then fixed, the body never loses the IgE, uh, so it'll look positive when it's not. I can't tell you the number of kids I have seen over the years when the parent brings them in, they're getting malnourished because their diet is so restricted because somebody ran a list of foods and they took all the positives out. And they'll say, okay, uh, you were uh, supposedly allergic to wheat. Uh, did you have react? Oh, no, we were wheat eating wheat until the day that the doctor brought out the list of foods and told me we were allergic to it. That's wrong. The body had adjusted to the wheat. It was perfectly fine for him to eat it. Uh, and so I won't run a huge list of foods anymore. I will ask the patient, what ones are you having trouble with? And with that, when I skin test to them, and they're positive, we have the diagnosis. Most of the time, if it's the classic food allergy, it'll be one or two. If they give me a list of about six or seven, that's when I start looking for the eosinophilic esophagitis. Okay. So um, we talked about, once again, the, um, some people will outgrow those, those food allergies, and they should, inter should they introduce them automatically after a certain age? Or? No. I just had... a. Uh, Person, patient in my office and uh, we had run a RAS test on him and it was negative I skin tested him it was negative and then I started with 5 cc's of whole milk or any percent milk I should say and we built up doubling the dose until he had taken in uh, a half a cup I mean a full cup of milk and uh, over a period of time, checking him each time to make sure there was no problems. And now I've been able to remove his milk allergy. Now, there are times when people will be accidentally exposed without reactions. And uh, on those, I will have them come in immediately. We will probably do both the RAS test and the food, uh, the skin prick. And if they're both negative, uh, the probability is they could start it. Most of them feel like, especially if they had a bad reaction initially, it's best to do it in the office with a uh, controlled, monitored, uh, open challenge to make sure it's okay. Okay, so when you say introduced it, because I just want to make sure I'm clear on this, when you were talking about your patient with the milk, you introduced it in small forms. I mean, like they drank it? Yeah. Okay. We had them <laughs> drink sure. a, a, a teaspoon. Okay. Uh, and then two teaspoons, and then four teaspoons. We just built it up gotcha. until they had taken in over a cup. And at that point, there was absolutely no change in any of their f symptoms, findings, et cetera, and therefore I could remove the allergy label from them. So I'm assuming you're, you're seeing these types of patients because they had an involuntary um, introduction or by mistake they, 
they were exposed to something that they've been allergic to in the past. Yes. So, you know, that must make it difficult, uh, anybody with a food allergy, to to go out to a restaurant because it's, it is, you just don't know. We're getting more and more, I would say, the Food Allergy Research Education Association, uh, who got all the labels on the things we buy now and says contains milk, contains the, the big six, I think, that have to be listed. Um, has done a lot of uh, good stuff in education, uh, making more and more people aware and more and more restaurants aware. And then the litigation that hits has really wakened up most restaurateurs uh, to not have it anywhere around. So uh, it's still difficult, especially on some things. that have to be avoided. Mm-hmm. But there are more and more places where uh, the restaurants are working in a way to, to keep things good. Yeah, cater to them a little bit more. Now, I'll give you an interesting one. <clears throat> the education of the patient is important. For instance, who would be concerned that chili was a risk factor to peanut allergy. And yet, when they have the chili cook-offs, a lot of them have as their secret ingredient peanut butter. Peanut butter will take the very liquid chili material and thicken it up and give it a nice creamy substance thing to it. And the spices are strong enough to override any Mm -hmm. taste of the peanut. Who would expect it to be in chili. You wouldn't. There were some Chinese restaurants that would use peanut butter as the glue to hold the egg roll together when they cooked it. (laughs) And then take a place that makes the ice cream and blends a bunch of stuff into it. Mm -hmm. Well, that swizzler that mixes the substances into the thing If the person before had ground peanuts in their thing, there may be peanuts sitting on that swizzler, and they have to be very careful that they clean it. And then you'll also notice that many times they put the ground-up peanuts next to the fruits, Mm -hmm. and it falls into the fruit. So I have to tell my parents to look at the... uh, where the peanuts are and make sure what is going into their child's... uh, mixed up ice cream treat uh doesn't have the peanut in it it's gonna be scary for somebody that especially a small child and a parent that has a a peanut allergy i mean it's got to be very scary for them it is scary but it is also if they understand what to look for and at the first sign of symptom treat it with the adrenaline they usually will have no problems now that said We are in the hot season here in uh, Fresno. You do not leave your epinephrine injectors in your car. 10 to 15 minutes in a glove compartment of a car with the temperatures inside the car going up to 150 destroys it. And so uh, those always have to go with you. And if you're going to be in the park all day, and you have a picnic going to be held. 
make sure you put your EpiPens or epinephrine injectors in a cool bag type thing with a cooling substance to keep them in the 50 to 60 degree range if possible because you don't want them getting destroyed in the heat all day. So there are things you, there are a lot of work that the parents have to go through. Yeah. And I understand that, but we are trying to get to the point where um, they know so much about it and the population knows so much about it that it isn't going to be a problem. Very interesting stuff. Well, thank you. Is there anything else that you could recommend somebody that they think they may have a food allergy? Is there a point that they should be going to see an allergist or talk to their primary care doctor first? Or what do you recommend? Well, many times you have to be referred from your primary care doctors. And we love working with our primary care colleagues. At the same point, if there is a concern of food allergy, I would simply ask, that those patients be automatically referred to a board-certified allergist, immunologist to be evaluated for it, especially one who has had a background in food allergies. Because uh, there's a lot of education, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and we don't want all the mistakes. Yes, it's easy to order a blood test, but then interpreting the blood test many times I see goes way awry. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I actually tend to decrease the number of uh, food uh, checked on based on the history because most parents are excellent uh, historians. And I will occasionally have a patient come in who says, I think I have something causing the problem, but I don't know what it is. And, And being an adult, I tend to use things like the Excel spreadsheet and I'll have them, every time they have a reaction, they have to list all the foods they've lit, eaten in the previous six hours and do it alphabetically. And then when they have a reaction, put down ones. Mm-hmm. And then other days put in, when they don't have a reaction, some of the foods that they have eaten and put in zeros. And after a number of episodes, go back and look over it and see if there's any one of them that has a one all the way across. Mm -hmm. And then you may have found your culprit. Yeah, Uh, We're getting more and more into the situation with more and more spices being used. Uh, They are in small amounts in lots of different things, making it very confusing. And if it happens to be a spice, that's a problem. That will be a, a nice way of finding it. Uh, just doing routine skin testing uh, on it. Sometimes the spices change when they're cooked. Uh, There's a lot of different things that are involved in it. So I think that food allergy today is one of the major areas where referral to allergy immunology is uh, a major thing to do to get it figured out and get the person well-trained so that they don't start popping Benadryl when they've had an exposure thinking it's going to help them. Yeah. And that's, that's something to be said too. If you think you have a food allergy of something, you know, don't, you know, don't self-diagnose, get to a doctor and make sure that that's the, that's the truth. And that's something that you need to take out of your diet or, you know, what, not really, you don't have an allergic reaction to it. It could have just been, you know, temporary 
the, 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 the real problem is when it turns out to be a f you're, you're questioning a fairly common food, which is in a lot of things and hard to avoid. Right. But you're having a history that sometimes you eat it without problems, sometimes it causes problems. Now, I already mentioned the heat problem of denaturing some of them, but there are some that where it's no heat involved. And what we then times find usually is a contaminant. When I was at Duke, there's nothing that a fellow hates more than to have a study done on a patient and have two of your placebos come back positive, both for symptoms and showing a sign of a reaction. And we always fed the patient food just before we did the challenge to help dilute it in case they were allergic to it. The only thing that person was allergic to that the, the person had eaten in both episodes was a fresh orange. She had eaten mm. orange juice at times, but on those things, the only thing was. So I brought her back. I skin tested her to the orange extract, to the orange juice, and then I took the skin off of the orange and poked it and pricked her with it. She was negative to the first two and highly positive to the third one. And fortunately, the placebo alerted us to the fact that she had a systemic reaction to an orange. And, but the protein in the orange was destroyed in the atmosphere. Now, what did I tell her to do? Avoid all oranges, period, including orange juice. Because I don't know if she's drinking fresh squeezed orange right. juice, if it's going to be in there or not. And therefore, she was smarter to just avoid it. It's a hard thing to do if you love oranges. But in her case, I think it was the wiser move. So it, there's a lot of detective work that it takes, but it also takes the patient being the detective because your doctor doesn't have all that time anymore to go over every single thing. He has to have you do things like the uh, spreadsheet mm -hmm. to help him get to the basis of where the problem is. Well, and, that, and that's a good, you know, people are, are constantly more conscious about their health, and that's a good way for somebody to think if they do have an allergen to a food is to, to really track it that way and, and do your testing and then take that information to your doctor. That's, I think that's excellent advice. So we, we've expanded a lot with food allergy, food intolerances, lactose being a big one. Uh, my GI colleagues have now found some problem with fructose as it causing problems. Uh, the one area we haven't looked at yet and which is of a concern to me to some extent is the role of the pest, the herbicides that are, the, the plant is made resistant to the herbicide like wheat, mm -hmm. and then the field is sprayed with the herbicide and the wheat grows, but there's a lot of herbicide on the wheat, and how much of that getting into uh, the diet and its effect I don't think has been well looked at. And it's that type of thing that is, I think, a new area that they need to start taking a close look at just to make sure we're not missing anything. Yeah. I'll give you the reason, and I'm not going to say this is connected, okay? But when I look at the epidemic of autism in our world, when I was a resident in pediatrics, it was rare to find one child in thousands 
with it. Now it's like 1 in 88 or 80 or something like that. What have we changed? Is it the pipes in our system? What have we changed? I don't think we have found it. And I think we need to be looking at a lot of different things with careful studies, not these bad studies where they say, oh, this group had problems with this and this one didn't. And there may be a full explanation why that's the case. That's garbage research. We need good research to find it. And uh, I think the NIH with the NIAID uh, is doing a lot of good research in these things. But I think there's a lot more we need to be doing uh, when it comes to autism. Yeah, I, I agree. And that, that's definitely a, another topic later down the road. But, um, but I agree that there's, there's been a lot of things that have changed and evolved when it comes to autism. And you do, once again, it's, it's, very, it's a, a common topic. You're hearing mm-hmm. about a lot more because there's more diagnosis of it. Um, right. so. Well, thank you. I appreciate you coming in today. Well, I thank you. And uh, if anybody needs to be evaluated, I'm at the Boz Allergy office on uh, North Fresno Street. And I would be glad to see them. They can just you know, have their primaries uh, get in touch. I really like it when the primary uh, gets in touch so we can send information back to them and work together as a team. That's true. That's, that's good, um, good advice to you. So you're, I'm sorry, you're at what Boz location? At the North Fresno Street, 7471 North Fresno Street. It's right on between Alluvial and uh, knees. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, good location. Yeah. Right along the right along the forty one. You can see us off the forty one. A lot of doctors in that area. So good. Yes. Good. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs>